When Julie Lewis gave birth to her first daughter, a complicated pregnancy caused the need for a blood transfusion. At that moment, she became infected with HIV. But it wasn't until six years later, in 1990, when she was finally diagnosed. In the early 90s, a diagnosis of HIV positive was essentially a death sentence. So Julie waited to die. After some time passed, despite some health complications, Julie realized she didn't feel like she was dying after all. So with grit and determination, she decided it was time to start living her life in a more meaningful way. 2014 marked 30 years of her survival with HIV, and Julie wanted to mark this beautiful milestone by building one medical facility for people in need. Her son, Ryan, of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, challenged her to think bigger by building 30. Thus, the 3030 Project was born. The 3030 Project aims to improve access to comprehensive health care in communities impacted by HIV and AIDS. Their goal is to build 30 medical facilities worldwide with the help of Seattle-based nonprofit Construction for Change. Thanks to advanced medicine and healthcare in the United States, Julie has beaten the odds. Many people around the world are not so fortunate, but 3030 Project wants to change this for those who need it most. A Seattle local, wife, mother, and lifelong healthcare advocate, Julie is using her influence to leave a lasting legacy in our world. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. Well, we are super thrilled to speak with Julie Lewis today. She is the founder of 3030 Project, recipient of the 2015 Nelson Mandela Changemaker Award, mother, grandmother, um, and local Seattleite. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So for our audience, could you just give us a brief flyover of who you are, what you do, um, maybe what part of Seattle you call home? Well... I mean, I'm just a regular person um, who I am. I'm, I am a health educator by schooling and spent most of my um, mid-life raising kids. And, and we moved back to, to Spokane, I mean, to Seattle from Spokane 13 years ago, just as my, my children were um, all in college. So I guess Spokane. Uh, Seattle for me has been sort of where I've become an empty nester. And um, so I've spent most of my um, adult life in health education around HIV and AIDS because um, I was infected with HIV when my uh, 32-year-old daughter was born, so mm. quite a long time ago. Um, so I was a high school health teacher and science teacher, and after I was diagnosed with HIV, I became a public health educator for the health department in uh, Spokane. Uh, and for 10 years, I was, I was on a speaker's bureau for them, um, educating mostly youth about bloodborne pathogens, um, mostly HIV and hepatitis C. Hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about 3030 Project. I mean, I know it's geared towards building medical facilities, but what was really the, the genesis uh, behind starting it? Obviously, your, your experience and, um, and your health uh, that, that you've had to overcome, but what, what was kind of the genesis around that? Well, I had been 
volunteering for an organization called Construction for Change for three years. And so as, as in my personal life, I started uh, to approach the 30th year that I had survived HIV positive, um, it really was my family who came up with the idea to do a project um, to commemorate that day. And for me, um, because I had so many friends die and, and who didn't survive 30 years um, with HIV, um, I knew I wanted it to be a pay-it-forward kind of project that did something good for someone else. And because um, I am so passionate about health care and uh, because I had been working for a nonprofit construction management company, my idea was just to marry those two ideas and do a project that would provide healthcare facilities for organizations around the world that were working in areas that lacked healthcare access. And for those organizations to be able to extend their reach into the populations, the very poor populations really where they worked. And so we launched the project two years ago. Um, my big idea, to be honest, was to build one healthcare facility, <laughs> and uh, and I contacted uh, a partner, uh, partners in health in Boston, and and collaborated with them on this project in Malawi, and it was actually my son Ryan, who looked at me and said, "Why are we only building one? You've lived thirty years. We should build 30. And I was like, <laughs> 30 is way more than one." But, you know, Ryan's very convincing. And, um, and with Dreamer. the help of the whole Macklemore team, we kind of um, started down this road of this giant project instead of, like, building one. So we are um, hoping to build 30. Um, we were hoping it would be a five-year project. So we have a lot of work still to do. We're two years into it. And we've completed the construction of five clinics and um, are working on the funding for the next five um, yeah. So. So you mentioned HIV, your HIV diagnosis, and surviving that for thirty years as this catalyst for for this project. Would you take us back to that moment in time when you found when you were diagnosed? That was nineteen eighty two. Well, no, I was actually infected in nineteen eighty four. Okay. So I've been uh, HIV positive for thirty two years, but. Um, I wasn't diagnosed for six and a half years. Mm -hmm. So I was actually diagnosed in August of 1990. And at that point, my children were two, four, and six years old. And um, so for me, I think there's just one thing worse, um, for sure, that I know than, than getting diagnosed HIV positive, and that is having to get your own children mm -hmm. uh, tested for a disease that you may have given them that they could die of. So, so for me, when I was diagnosed and then they said, you need to get all of your kids tested because two of them were born to an HIV positive mom and you've breastfed all three of them, my kids had about a 25% chance of being infected. And back in the day, um, there were no rapid tests. So basically, they went in on a Thursday and got their blood drawn. And we didn't get those test results back to the following Monday. And that was a long four days. I mean, just to sit and think, which are infected, who's going to raise them if my husband and I both die. So when I found out that I was for sure HIV positive, they had to run two tests back in the 90s. 
Um, so the same day I found out that they weren't infected, I found out that I was for sure HIV positive, and it just didn't seem that bad. I mean, it was like, oh, good, we dodged a huge bullet. I'll just deal with it myself, but I'm not going to deal with sick kids. Um, Scott wasn't infected, my husband. So, so for us, it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been, right? And um, and then I think it settled in over the next year or so what it meant to like um, have a diagnosis that you probably won't live more than you know three or four years. So and in 1990, 91, we. Don't didn't know it near as much as we do about HIV as we do now, right? That no, was- not at all. There was a lot of fear. Um, we didn't tell hardly anyone for four years just because we didn't want our kids to have to deal with the stigma that surrounded the disease at the time. There was one medication that had just come out of trials in 1990, and that was AZT, and they hadn't been done any trials on women or children. Mm-hmm. So we were kind. I was taking a drug that was. Um, they were guessing the dosages made me very sick. Um, And at the same time, not being able to tell anyone, I knew that there was anything wrong. So it was just a big, you know, um, fake out. Every day I would be so sick and then, you know, you'd put on your happy face and go out in public and act like we're okay. And that was difficult. It's it's a very, takes a lot of energy to have a secret like that in your family. Um, So in 1994, when we um, kind of went public with the disease. It was actually a real relief, and it and it was sort of the catalyst to me doing a lot of public speaking. And I'd spent four good years thinking about it, and so I had a lot to say by that time. You know, was there a moment in that thirty years where you, at first, it was this death sentence mm-hmm. almost, and then was there a moment in time where you kind of realized maybe it wasn't going to be thirty years, but you were you're past the, you you understood that you could live with it and and thrive with it. Yeah, I think. I spent about six months waiting to feel worse, and then I woke up one day and I thought, I don't feel any worse, so I might as well just keep going. You know, like you you sit around waiting to die. It's a really weird space in life, and I just decided that until um, I was dead, I was going to keep living, and so, and that was a real mental shift for me. and even things like, you know, I was so sad. I was thinking, oh, I'll never see my kids get out of grade school, much less graduate high school, much less get married. And then I decided I was just going to stop thinking like that. I was going to pretend I would be there for those things. I would imagine those things because imagining them was better than nothing, right? And so I think I had a real shift in attitude after about six months of just kind of waiting for something to happen. And then, of course, in the mid-1990s, um, they came out with a whole new drug class called um, protease inhibitors, which was the beginning of, of really this becoming more of a chronic illness instead of a fatal disease. So, But people were still dying. People are still dying. That's the thing. I had a really good friend die just a couple years ago. Um, so a lot of times um, these new medications are great for someone who's early in the disease but by the mid-90s, some of my friends had been HIV positive for 15 years, and so they weren't able to uh, benefit from the new medications. Yeah. One of my favorite authors is Viktor Frankl. Um, he wrote a book uh, called Man's Search for Meaning, and he talks specifically about how uh, to utilize your pain, that, and your pain can ultimately 
lead to your greatest purpose, right? Mm. Uh, he was a Jewish, uh, Austrian Jew who was actually in the Holocaust, and he helped tons of people get over that um, tragedy of being at Auschwitz. And it's mm-hmm. just a, a really beautiful story. Do Do you feel like this pain that was at one at one time a death sentence, at one time you were just sitting around waiting um, to die? Do, are you Are you thankful for it now? Do you feel like you actually have purpose because of it? Can Can you speak to that at all? Well. I feel like I have more survival guilt mm. than I actually look at my pain because I saw so many people go through so much worse pain than I actually ever experienced. But I do feel like there is actually no rhyme or reason why I was the one that survived, where so many of my friends and even, you know, one of my really good friends' daughter um, was Ryan's age, literally a week mm. yo- younger than him. And she died when she was seven, two years before she starts, I mean, two days before she started second grade. And that could have been him. Um, So I guess part of me just feels like since I'm still here and I survived this and so many people didn't, Mm -hmm. I do feel responsible or like I have a burden to do something for their legacy. And I think that's more what this project is for me, is mm-hmm. just a way to honor um, a lot of people who just aren't here. Yeah, so that's beautifully said. Well, so uh, it, it seems like Ryan and all of your other kids are, are very heavily involved uh, in 30 for 30. Has that been fun? Is that exciting? Uh, are you kind of like, hey, I got this, guys, and they're, like, micromanaging you a little bit. Like, what is, <laughs> speak, speak to that a little bit. Uh, no, it's very fun, and it's, done, it's not just uh, my, my three kids, um, Teresa, Laura, and Ryan, but my husband, Scott, is also very involved. Um, and and I, they don't manage me. They tell me more what to do. Like, you know, like, Teresa's the director of the 3030 Project, right. and I just couldn't do it without them or without the Construction for Change team or without our... Loads of volunteers. We have some of the best interns from the University of Washington. It really takes a village to pull off this project. And I am more the voice of the project, but the work is actually being done by a lot of other people. So um, so I, I'm grateful to my family and my colleagues just because uh, this was kind of my dream, and yet there's no way I could do this on my own. So... Take us through when, so when the money comes in, what is, how does, how do you get a project off the ground? It sounds like you have multiple projects going on at the same time. So that means multiple buildings, multiple healthcare Mm -hmm. facilities going up at the same time. How does that work? How do you make that all happen? Well, we aren't a nonprofit. We are a project that is, uh, that has a beginning and an end and we are managed by construction for change. So they are the building experts, thank goodness, because I couldn't build a building for you if my life depended on it. So we get up, we have a pretty uh, thorough applic- application process, and my job with Construction for Change before I started the project was to review and vet applications as well as work with our partners on their sustainability plans. So I came into the project knowing quite a bit about um, how you uh, work with a partner and and prepare them to be ready to build a building um, that will last 30 years. So we get an application from different healthcare partners, 
And uh, we actually have a committee now that reviews those applications. And really what we're looking for in the application is an organization that has a good track record of doing quality health care in areas around the world that are very difficult to do health care in. Um, and we're looking for an organization that's well embedded in their community, that's working with the government programs. And really, if we're going to build a building that lasts 30 years, we want to be confident that this organization is going to keep having programs for 30 years and be able to maintain a building for 30 years. So it's a lot. It's a lot to look for in an organization. And we look at everything from large organizations like um, Partners in Health or Fred Hutch to community-based organizations that are based in these countries that we work in. Um, and it's a long process uh, because we don't fully fund the buildings. Uh, we like to see that our organization can raise funds because they're going to have to. And then, um, so the money has to be raised before we'll break ground. Uh, so we do, a, you know, the 3030 project is a funding project. So we do a lot of fundraising activities and so does the organization that we work with. Um, the land needs to be owned. Uh, that we're going to build on or have a very long-term stable lease. Mm -hmm. Because if you build on leased land that isn't stable, oftentimes that landlord will see a really nice building and then take back the property. Mm -hmm. So the property has to be very secure. And then, um, you know, after the funding is raised and the project is sort of conceived, we have a couple of... Um, uh, it, uh, architectural firms. One is uh, a branch of D for um, HDR, which is a huge uh, architectural firm worldwide. They have a philanthropic arm called Design for Others or D4O, and they do a lot of pro bono work for us on our medical buildings. So we have to get a great design. Um, we don't do much fancy stuff. Um, we work on a pretty tight budget. Um, but we do build very nice buildings. So after we have a design and we have money and we have land, then really Construction for Change is managing this, but then they definitely take over. They interview project managers. We usually send two project managers to the site um, to manage the budget mostly. And they hire a local foreman and an all-local building crew. They procure local uh, products to build the building, and then they build it. And then at the end, we literally just hand that building over to the organization that we're working for with the only expectation that they will send us some measurement and evaluation and um, so that we have good data that that building's being used yeah, well. That's great. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, there's five that you've built. Yes. Um, where, where are those at? We have two in Kenya. We have one in Malawi, we have one in India, and one in Uganda. Wow! And you've been you've been to all these places, I'm assuming too. And... I haven't. Oh, okay. No, okay. I don't often travel. Okay. Um, for a couple reasons: is one, a lot of my travel is funding, fundraising, right. Right. and then also my health is not great. Right. So, uh, so it's ex exhausting. But the main reason I don't travel much is I don't do anything mm. like. I send architects, pre-construction people, builders, photographers. Like, if I had any skills whatsoever, I'd probably travel more. But, You're a project um, manager, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I take donors sometimes. I took a trip to Kenya last summer. Cool. Uh, I think we'll be going to South Africa and India this year. But we, you know, all of the money that is raised for 3030 goes to our buildings. And so, one, I have to raise extra money if I'm going to travel. <laughs> just to go, yeah. <laughs> and I want to use that money as, you know, any money that comes in. I'm just so aware um, that someone gave that. And so I want to send the person to the project that has the most skill set to keep the project going. So I actually just don't travel all that much. And the facilities, are they? do they have a certain angle? Are they general health care facilities? Or are they geared towards women specifically or what? Good question. The five clinics that we have built, uh, that, well, the five buildings that we have built so far are all health general health clinics. Um, several of them are actually government clinics uh, that our partnering organizations are working with the government in these buildings. Um, but when I say healthcare facility, we do have a wide variety of applications that aren't clinics. We have a maternity ward that we're building. We have um, a we have a really cool research lab project in South Africa um, where uh, a doctor there who's had a huge influence on a community in, in northern South Africa um, has had a lot of success with um, women in HIV uh, research, and he's developed a, a ring, a vaginal ring that not only prevents new infections, but also treats HIV. So, yeah, so he has some fabulous research going on and needs an, another building. So we'll probably build that. Um, we have two projects, one in South Africa and one in Kenya, that are very similar. They're community centers with youth health clinics in them. Um, so in Africa, even though the death rates from HIV have gone down for infants and adults, they've actually tripled for youth. Mm. So there's a real gap there in, in um, reaching populations. So uh, during the World Cup in South Africa, FIFA built this community center for youth with a clinic in it, and it's been wildly successful. So they're reproducing that in two different places, and so we're funding for that. Cool. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing a significant portion um, of donors and supporters are, are here in Seattle, um, but I'm, I'm also guessing it's global as well. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is, what's been Seattle's response to the 3030 project? Do you, you know, is there, um, is there a large group of people that are just 3030 um, advocates for you, uh, considering that you guys live here, you know, that Ryan's here? What, what has that been like? Um, well, Seattle's been amazing at their response. Seattle, in general, has an amazing track record in global healthcare, mm. um, and so not only has it been a great response financially, but just the global partners that we have here in the Gates Foundation, in Fred Hutch, in UW Global Health, um, Seattle Foundation, Seattle International Foundation. I mean, all of those partners. Um, have been our cheerleaders uh, in in many many ways, and and also um, looking at partnerships um, for the future in in buildings because a lot of these organizations need buildings abroad. Um, as far as financial partners, both individual and corporate. I mean, T-Mobile, who is a local business, uh, built a whole clinic, wow. funded a whole clinic yeah. for us in Uganda. Is it pink? 
Well, it's <laughs> a good question. That's a patent color. Okay. <laughs> we okay. had to like ask for Team the patent Bink. just to put yeah. it on a sign. <laughs> but anyway, so they've been great. Um, of course, the Macklemore team has been hugely supportive financially. Cool. They, uh, in their last tour, added a dollar per ticket. Wow. It's called the Plus One. Um, and other groups like Arcade Fire have done have done it. Cool. Um, but... We are the recipient recipient of part of that money, along with a lot of their um, their other uh, philanthropies that they support. Um, but that money has also funded a, a whole nother clinic in Malawi that we're just breaking ground on this summer. Um, and then there's just everything from my college sorority. <laughs> Those women have been amazingly supportive to um, just individuals. Um, who were supporting construction for change and now are supporting construction for change and this project. Um, yeah, we've had a, a lot of response from Seattle and I've had the opportunity to do a lot of speaking um, in local venues like Seattle Rotary had me. Um, I spoke at the Seattle International Foundation breakfast. Uh, Microsoft's had us out. So, I mean, Seattle's just so receptive to global health issues that I just feel very fortunate to be located here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So one of the genesis, the genesis for us even having this conversation to begin with on the, on the podcast is that Seattle's changed a ton in the last five years with this just explosion of economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see what, I guess... You've launched in the midst of that, basically. Um, and I guess you spoke to it a little bit, but have you seen this rise of Seattle both as a global city, um, economic prosperity? Has that benefited you guys? you feel like you've ridden a wave in that regard? or? Um, well, I don't think it's hurt us, sure. you know, um, at all. I don't know... Um, I actually, this is a great question because it's something I actually have never even thought about as far as the timing of our launch to the, you know, sort of the economic um, state of not just Seattle, but of our our whole country. Um, I think that for us, um, probably what's affected us more than that is, is Ryan and... Ben and the Macklemore team, their timing with um, sort of the success of the album, The Heist. And their, that timing was more related to social media and just that kind of the explosion of social media and how they had already built a social media platform. And because so much of our launch was actually young people, so not necessarily people who own homes and all that, I know that really affected us as far as um, just corporations who were looking at supporting us and and how the youth were really um, resonating with this HIV project, which was surprising to me because HIV, you know, the red ribbons have been replaced long ago by many other colors. So, but I don't think it, it hurt. I mean, having worked in nonprofit during the recession, and I know how hard that was and how many staff were cut back, it probably didn't hurt us whatsoever to, um, to launch during that time also. But I think it was a marriage of their success and the kind of where social media was at, at that time. Because I think now social media has become much more noisy with like lots of things. And so I don't even know if what they did could be done again right now. So timing and 
so many things is so crucial. Well, speaking of timing, it seems like healthcare in general is a topic of conversation in the last five to six years more than ever before. Right. And is it a right? And how do we get that to everybody? And it's a big problem, but... um, I mean, even in healthcare, global healthcare, you, um, for the average person who's not that interested in global healthcare, things like Ebola or Zika, like it's like it's it is sort of what's getting your attention at the mm-hmm. moment. So I was surprised because it was an HIV project. Um, the genesis of it came out of an HIV story mm-hmm. that it even resonated still. Like, um, and I was on some talk shows, Elvis Duran was one in, in New York, and he was surprised too, because we lived through the 80s and 90s and, you know, when it was such a big deal, and then it just hasn't been for so long. So that the, you know, that our Indiegogo that we launched with, that the youth were so passionate about it and buying our t-shirts and all this, it was surprising, I have to say, just that we captured that audience. Um, but I think that you know, that all had to do with the fact that a hip-hop group helped launch us. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we were very lucky about that. So to provide a little context, Ryan of, so Ryan Lewis of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, and you mentioned before we started that the heist was recorded in your basement. Is that true? <laughs> a good portion a good of portion. it was. Okay. At least the early versions of those songs. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> do, do you ever recall being like, guys, you you got to go somewhere else. Like, it's too loud. Or have you always just been like, yeah, come on, come on down to the basement and record whatever you got to do? Well, we bought that house because it had a basement with, with you know, cement walls. Um, mm. And really, yeah, it, was, it wasn't like um, I could kick anyone out. It was Ryan. And when he produces a song, you're going to hear the same stanza of that song. 400 times before it's good <laughs> and it will vibrate like you can't hear it outside but it literally vibrates the floor of your upstairs <laughs> so there were days but you know for four of the years uh when he was in college we actually lived in washington dc and he and his um, college friends lived in our house so it was it, i probably you know and i've always just been so proud of ryan that um you know it, there were days when you know, yeah, of course, you really just needed a break from the music, but um, but for the most part, I just think it was pretty uh, cool. He put his 10,000 hours in. Oh, my like. goodness, yeah. yeah, yeah, and plus some. Okay, <laughs> okay so being a Seattle native, um, loving the city, seeing what the city has done for 3030 Project and what it's just done for your family in general, what's what's your hope for the city? What do you what do you uh, what do you hope for in the next 10 to 30 years? Well, it's interesting because I lived in Seattle in the 70s and 80s, and then I moved to um, well, I moved to Eastern Washington, um, and then we came back 13 years ago. And I think what I was the most surprised about were that a lot of the things that I loved about Seattle the first time, even a lot of the restaurants and the the venues were the same. Like it was just like Seattle was the same, and I guess. What I see now, I guess my fear in Seattle is just that we're going to lose our personality just by pricing out so much of the culture that we love. And so so I guess, um, so that's just in general about Seattle. Um, I just hope that our boom doesn't actually drive out uh, the artists and the elderly and 
people who have lived in their communities for years and they now can't afford their rents. Um, I mean, I think we're all seeing that. Uh, and that our favorite little spots can't afford to stay, you know. Mm-hmm. So that would be the sad thing about being so successful as a city. Yeah. Um, What's one of your favorite spots? My favorite spots in Seattle? Well, see, I um, I was a teacher on Capitol Hill for several years, and so I just have this soft spot for Capitol Hill. And just I love, I love it up there. Um, so... I love it there, and I love Alki Beach. I also lived out there. And Alki Beach is surprisingly exactly the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I lived one right behind the Pepper Duck restaurant, and it's still there, and my house is still there. It's the exact same color it was there 35 years ago when I lived there, so it's just kind of funny. But my aunt also has a place. Uh, she died, but she had a place out on Alki, and so I used to go there as a child. Very cool. So I always thought it was so cool to have a beach in the middle of our city, yeah. especially in the Northwest. <laughs> right, right. What a beautiful view of you know Seattle and all that and stuff. And then I yeah, also just great. love the ferries. My parents used to live over on Hood Canal, um, so I spent a great deal of time on the ferries. You used to didn't have to get kicked off. So in the, when I was in college, I'd actually get on the ferry and ride it like 15 times back and forth <laughs> and study. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's the most beautiful like yeah. you know library on the planet. So. Right. <laughs> they should implement that again. I yeah, guess. seriously, it's a no, study now they, pass. Now they definitely make you leave. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, we're so grateful you joined us. Your story is amazing, and we're really excited about the work you're doing. For people listening, how can they get involved with 3030 Project if, if they wanted to? Well, I mean, it is a funding project, so we all always, you know, are delighted by donations. You can make a do- donation on our website at um, 3030project.org. Um, and, you know, as far as getting involved, we, um, if you're a construction professional, we are always looking for people to either do pre-construction trips um, where they go for usually a few days to a week and assess a project for us um, and set up some of the professionals in the community that will help build build our building. Um, or if you want to be a project manager for six months to a year of your life, um, that's uh, we're always looking for project managers who want an experience. Oftentimes they're retired professionals or people who are just out of construction management school. Um, we're in particular looking right now for French-speaking project managers to work in the country of Togo and West Africa because we have four projects there, um, and French is their native language. So, um, yeah, and then also we do a lot of events. So if you like to um, host tables at events or uh, help manage events, then then that's another thing. Do you have a big fundraising event coming up anytime soon? Um, I, we just had one, okay. and uh, we're... We are having one um, either the end of the fall or early winter. We're still um, trying to nail down a venue until you get a date of the venue. It's hard to you know to know for sure. Well, let us know. We'd love to push that out on our end too. So yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Cool. Okay, so if you enjoyed the interview, you can follow Julie on social media. Speaking of social media, um, at Julie A. Lewis. Um, and then you can follow 3030 Project at 3030 Project. Um, is that on Twitter and Instagram, both? 
Yes. I think Instagram is the 3030 The 3030 One of them is, yeah. I'm sorry. My interns do our social media. No, that's perfect. (laughs) We'll have it on our website. Yeah. um, in our show notes. So Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Julie, thank you so much. Well, thanks thank you. for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for sharing. Your 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 story is inspiring and keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we'll try to support in any way that we can. Great. So. Thank you, guys. Thanks. All right. Rise Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter at The Rise Seattle and use hashtag Rise Seattle to be a part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.